Hey, welcome to the Cold Turkey Podcast. This week, I'm uh, my guest is uh, Frank, uh, Frank King, actually. Um, he's a TED Talk conference uh, speaker. Uh, he's a comedian, stand-up comedian, and uh, he's going to tell us about um, some chronic uh, suicide tendencies that he uh, that he has to actually face uh, and has been facing for a while now and uh, you know like it was it was such such an interesting time to have a talk with Frank I I enjoyed it and you know it was pretty 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 amazing to see how he flips the conversation that is for many can seem so dark, but that guy found found a way to flip this. And um, I'm, I'm super happy to have met Frank. Um, in the meantime, you guys can share the podcast, talk about the podcast and uh, put a review, you know, like on any platform that you guys listen to, uh, you, you, um, guys and gals uh you can actually uh, put five stars put the thumbs up or whatever but uh talk about the podcast review it and without further ado i'll leave you with frank enjoy Hey, hi, Frank. How are you doing? I am good, my friend. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Um, let's start off right off. Um, where did this everything begin, Frank? You know, like if if you know, like I I I saw a bit of you know, like I saw your 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 TED talk, but I just want your the listeners to uh, kind of get you know, like where this where does this all rooted from? Oh, well, um, depression and suicide run in my family. It's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I'll spare you the details, but uh, in my first TED Talk, A Matter of Laugh, L-A-U-G-H, or Death, I talk about, I give the details of coming upon that suicide. And I myself came close enough to dying by suicide in 2010. I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And and younger as a as a kid, did 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 you feel any different? You know, like did did you did, would you would you uh, inhabited by this feeling as young as a young kid? Oh well, I told my first joke in the fourth grade, and I decided at that moment in time I wanted to be a comedian. It took me a couple of decades to get to the point where I began going to open mic nights, but. I recently learned about something called the imposter syndrome, where you feel like you really don't belong. You really haven't earned whatever it is you have achieved. And you feel like, you know, you're just waiting for somebody to figure it out and, and call you out as a fraud. And I have, I believe I have something, uh, reverse imposter syndrome, meaning I'm famous. It's just, nobody knows it yet. I, I feel like I'm overqualified. I'm just waiting for somebody to go, man, you're overqualified. You need to be famous. So, yeah, I always felt different as a kid. I always felt there was a path for me different than the average, you know, human being. And But I took the average path. I finished high school with the college, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Got a couple of degrees at my mother's insistence. She was big on education, and it didn't hurt me any. I then married my high school sweetheart. And the problem there was she had a very conventional 
idea about life, sort of young and upwardly mobile. You know, you get married, you both work full time, then you have a child. So, you know, the mom stays home. And then when the child gets old enough to go to school, wife goes back to work part time, blah, blah, blah. And uh, although she's a wonderful woman, I was miserable. And although the insurance business I was working in, insurance is a great business, if, if that's what you're born to do. I hated it. And I came to the conclusion that if I didn't change something, uh, sooner rather than later, I was going to kill myself. And that was actually a revelation because my next thought was, well, what have I got to lose? I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy, which is where I think I belong. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So strangely, uh, my my chronic suicidality, the uh, idea that suicide is always on the menu for me as a solution for problems large and small, uh, allowed me to make that transition. It's uh, I had nothing to lose. I mean, if a, a normal person without without uh, depression thoughts of suicide, if they're going to make that jump, divorce their spouse, quit their job, and try comedy. The next thought is going to be, what if it doesn't work out? I'll lose everything. Well, I had nothing to lose because I was going to kill myself anyway. So that's but, why my fourth TED Talk is called Suicide, the Secret of My Success. But if if I rewind the tape a bit, you know, like, how was your teen? You know, like, how were how you as a teen? Were you like a morbid, you know, like dark kind of, you know, like the, the you know, like, some will, you know, like gothic type, you know, like, are, were you that type of kid? Were you that type of uh, teenager? No, actually, I didn't realize, uh, I, I, did, I wasn't very depressed or depressed at all until college. And I chalked it up to the fact that my girlfriend, who became my first wife, was going to another university a long way away. I just thought I was lovesick. I didn't realize I was living with depression. And... I loved high school. I had a great, I mean, I was, I was a class clown. I was, you know, I, um, I was in the senior talent show, did stand up comedy. First person ever to do stand up comedy at the senior talent show. So, uh, the depression didn't set in until college and then thoughts of suicide didn't set in until I was married a couple of years and realized I was not pursuing what I believed I should be doing. And how does it creep in? You know, like, so you wake up one day and, all of a sudden in the list of options you got, you got this new one or how does it creeps in? Uh, I was driving down Highway 163 in San Diego about five in the afternoon, which is kind of my low point in my day. My biorhythm seemed to bottom out around five. And I was driving, we were separated, I think at the time, and I was depressed. And then for the first time, the thought occurred to me, you know, I could just kill myself. And it, it took me by surprise because I'd never had that thought before. And then, but I've had it many times. Uh, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. That's chronic suicidality. And there may be people listening to this podcast who have very similar thoughts. I bump into people when I speak who have those thoughts, who think they are they are just some kind of freak and nobody else thinks that way. And they feel very alone. And when they hear me say it out loud and they realize they're not alone, that other people live with this, it's the, the relief is palpable. And I have no doubt. I mean, like, I, I, I remember that, uh, and I'm not sure uh, if it's Travis Barker on the Joe Rogan podcast that talked about this, that he had, um, he calls that, that like the suicide syndrome or something like that. 
Yeah, the the um, is either chronic suicidality or chronic suicidal ideation, I believe, in the DSM. You know, the big book of yeah, yeah, yeah. psychiatric disorders. And and what can be done about this? Is there is there any cure? Uh, no, uh, I used to say that I battled depression, but the battle battling battling implies you can win, and this is not something I can beat. I can tie, I can lose and kill myself, but I cannot win. So I. I now say I live with depression. I I take a holistic approach to the treatment. I have diet, exercise. I do uh, medication, meditation, and I've got another. I've got another TED talk I just booked in November in Durango, Colorado. It's called "Mental Health and the Orgasm: Treat Your Depression Single-Handedly." So, uh, a, my my three-legged stool for treatment is medication, uh, meditation, and masturbation. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I sent that into 12 different committees and all of them turned it down. The 13th one thought it was the best thing they'd ever heard. So, and, and do you, you know, like, I, I mean, you, you, you mentioned the, 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 the feeling of depression. Do you have kind of, um, like, I, I would say like a, a waking up conversation with yourself where that option, I mean, it's, let's be honest here like it's 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 a crazy option right like it's kind you know like sure. it's the extreme do you have like a conscious Absolutely. conversation with yourself where you say like what the fuck you know like what's going on you know like what what's what's going on in my brain here well no i've been living with it for so long that when it pops up as an option i i joke with myself about it i say to myself now there's a great idea no but i mean uh, initially mockingly. initially when it first started yeah, you mean the first Oh, I was, yeah, I was a little frightened. I'd never, had never had that thought before, but that was in, that was in 1983, 84. So I've been living with that for so long. And it's just, you know, it's, it's like, um, DOS running under windows. It's just always there. Occasionally you, you get a glimpse of it. Yeah. And so even back in, at that time, my guess is that you, you, you initially, what you, you kind of chase it, you chase it off as what, you know, like I'm, I'm, What's that crazy thought? And then it inhibits yourself. You know, like I'm trying to, you know, like I'm trying to get, um, you know, like an impression of how it is. You know, like you wake up in the morning and it, it it's kind of sits on your shoulder. Uh, the depression does. Um, I have what's called major depressive disorder, which means it lasts anywhere from three days to two weeks and recurs. Okay. And I'll wake up I'll wake up or in the middle of the day I'll realize I'm I'm sliding slowly toward bottom. And usually that's on the first day and then bottom out on the second and I sort of climb back up on the third. And then my the simile, the way I describe it is it's like somebody's turning up the force of gravity. It's harder and harder, you know, the steps you're it's like wearing lead filled boots, you know, it's harder and harder to put one foot in front of the other. But I, I know that it's gonna only last usually for me for a couple of three days. And I take medication, which is sort of shorten that cycle and spread out the number of cycles a year. So but the suicidal, you know, the um, first time I thought of it, I thought, no, I think I'll just stick around and see how this all comes out. Uh, since then, because I've had that thought so many times, so here, here's something that, here's how I know if somebody has chronic suicidality, I'll ask them, have you ever been driving down the road like the highway and seen a bridge abutment up ahead and think to yourself, you know, if I turn the wheel just a little bit, I could hit that bridge above and head on and that would be the end of that and if they say yes then that's pretty good chance they've got chronic suicidality because that, that is a very that is a very 
a prominent symptom. You know, you're driving on the mountain road and switch back and you look down to the ravine, you think if I ran off the road, that would be that, or you're a train, you know, a crossing of a train, trains coming, you think if I could pump the gas, put it up on the tracks, that would be that. Those are all very common thoughts when you have chronic suicidality. You're constantly, you know, thinking. Yeah. So what you're saying is that, that, like, you you pretty much <laughs> you're an analytical machine of every death option around you when you're in that that mood. Uh, it's not, actually it's not a mood. It's just like it's like Doss is always running. I uh, pulled up to the train track the other day. I was in a good mood, and I stop, and the train's coming. And my thought was, I wonder how far I'd have to back up to run the car through the first crossing guard. You know, the thing comes down, the, the thing that goes across the road. Uh, how fast would I have to be going to go through that one, but not go through the one on the other side? So I would actually remain on the tracks. And for me, it was just a math problem. I'm just trying to figure out how, how fast, <laughs> so <laughs> how far would I have to so you, how fast would I have to be going. So you're stopped at the light and your brain goes... All math on you on <laughs> what's the successful yeah. equation. Yeah, because I don't want to end up on the other side of the track through both the guards, uh, and now they're broken, and I'm alive and on the other side of the track, and I owe the railroad company for both the crossing guards. So, but again, it was just a math problem for me. It was just you know just a mental exercise. It just occurred to me out of nowhere. I was in a good mood. It just popped up as I saw the train coming. That's that's crazy. Do you? Yes, it is. Well, and here's, <laughs> here's the upside of that. The upside is, and I've heard other people who have the same condition say this, if it weren't for my chronic suicidality, you know, that, the, that I have an option anytime I like, I would have killed myself a long time ago. But because I'm, I'm essentially sitting in the window seat in the exit row on the plane and can leave anytime I like, that allows me to go on. Because you have the liberty and you're in charge of it? Yep, because I have made the decision. Now, there are three factors uh, in uh, you know, the three g general main factors in somebody's mind when they're when they're sort of rolling up to a suicide. One is a feeling of burdensomeness; the world would be better off without me. Two, there's a social isolation; they've isolated themselves from friends and family and, and social activities they used to take great joy in. And three is you've crossed that barrier where you've 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 admitted to yourself that you could do it, and so that's you know. Because I know I can do it if things get horribly bad. It allows me to move on when things just get really bad, if that makes sense. And but you know, Frank, you know, like I, I, I listen to all of this and you know, like I have to imagine that you know, like some of the people, you know, like from from my reading around this, you know, like the the last few days or the last few hours. They would say that they, you know, like they would never have suspected that these people would would do this. You know, like they they would have never no. because they they're full of light. They seem happy, and I guess you know, like they've they've made peace with that plan. But I tend to you know, like I I, I tend to think that um, that beforehand, before those critical, let's say forty eight hours or seventy two hours, that before that, they're they're really dark. You know, like they 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 would be seen or perceived as really dark and as you said depressed were you ever in like in, uh, on that layer of you know like a mood that people could have said geez frank is not doing too well or uh no i don't think so we're um people with mental illness all the time are very good actors 
and they don't, uh, you know, they don't show it because, as you said, you hear all the time, you know, well, we had no idea. He didn't give us any hints. Why didn't he say something? Uh, and by the way, that's a very dangerous symptom. If somebody's depressed, depressed, depressed for a long time, and all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, is happy, there's a chance that uh, they've chosen time, place, method, and they are. Do you? Uh, did you hang on? No. Well, uh, there's a chance that they will. Well, Made peace. Um, yeah, they're they're at peace because they know that it's coming to an end, and so that's a very dangerous symptom, very dangerous sign that I talk about in my keynote. You know, because I talk about signs and symptoms, and that's one of them. That's a very dangerous one. Any other um, that you would you know like that that would come in mind that you know like are important for the listeners? Yes. Um, let's see. Let's talk about depression first. Signs of depression. Yep. Um, they let their personal hygiene go, uh, sleep too much, can't sleep, eat too much, can't eat. Um, they're not taking the joy they used to take in, in their in the social activities in which they used to take a great deal of joy. Uh, they have trouble getting up in the morning, but they rally in the afternoon. That's a big one. And then, uh, what I tell them when I do my keynote is I say, uh, if you spot signs or symptoms like that, then you need to know what to say and what not to say. What, what you don't want to say, if you believe the person is depressed, is pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? What you do want to say is, um, I'm here for you and mean it. I know you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. I will take the time, and I'll help you get the treatment. And then you have to ask them, This is part of the deal. Are you having thoughts of suicide? Which Now, is a, a great taboo, right? It's it's a. I mean, it's it seems like you almost can't ask that question. Well, there's no wives' tale that you should never mention the S word, suicide, in front of somebody who is depressed because, and I love the reasoning, it might give them the idea. Uh, suicide? What a great idea! Uh, trust me, uh, it's probably crossed their mind. So you you should actually do the reverse. You should absolutely. And when I teach this, I say, look, you have to ask, are you having thoughts of suicide? And I tell my students or the audience, if you can't ask that question, you find somebody who can. Now, the signs that you might be suicidal, we've talked about one of them, which is very dangerous. If they're depressed for a long time and happy for no reason, they may have chosen time, place, and method. And, and the reason they're happy is because the pain is going to end. Most people who die by suicide don't want to die. I didn't want to die. I just wanted the pain to stop. Yeah. Uh, people who are thinking about suicide, they talk about death and dying. They Google death and dying. They death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork or their writing. They give away their prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. Uh, they begin to gather the meat, gather the means, whether it's buying a gun and ammunition or stockpiling medications to die by suicide. And then the the top of that pyramid is the one we've already talked about, which is depressed for a long time, then happy for no apparent reason. So, uh, and what do you say to somebody who you believe is, well, first you say, don't do it. Second, you say, do you have a plan? And if they have a plan, you say, what is your plan? If they're, if they're, if they have a plan and it's detailed, then that's when you want to get them on the phone with the suicide prevention lifeline. If they're a young person, at least in the U S there's a suicide prevention text line. Uh, you text the word help to seven, four, one, seven, four, one. Uh, if they won't pick up the phone, then you pick up the phone, and the volunteer at the lifeline will do their best to get the phone into the hand of the person who is in crisis. And finally, the question comes up, what do you do 
when do you call the cops? Uh, if they're in immediate danger to themselves or other people, you have no choice but to dial the police up and have them come and they'll be arrested. Because, yeah, because they're, they're, you have a responsibility for someone that's in danger of themselves, right? Yes, or other people. You know, if they're, they're, they're in, in risk of hurting themselves or other people, then you have no choice but to call the police. Now, they're going to be upset, but I'd rather have them upset and alive than, you know, yeah, happy. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and um, yeah. How how did it? You know, like what was the what was your own process? You know, like so so those first thoughts started to appear in your mind, and obviously, it, I guess as time goes, the mount mountain that is um, escaping or or breaking that that almost it, the the. The other option of staying there and being still in insurance and and keeping up with that that marriage must have been almost like a death sentence to you if the option of killing yourself becomes a viable option, right? You know, am I am I wrong yeah, here? That's no, that's why I said that's why my TED talks called "Suicide: The Secret of My Success" because uh, the way I describe it is, let's say you're standing on the edge of a cliff. Um, and it's like 10 story drop and there's a beautiful lake and it's deep, but it's 10 story drop coming up behind you is a brush fire. Uh, so if you stay put, if you're, you're going to die in the fire, if you jump, you know, the, the fall at 10 from 10 stories may kill you, but then again, you may land properly and be able to swim away. So, I mean, is there, there's not really any choice at that moment with the fire coming up behind you. You got to jump and take the chance. And that's, that's where I was. If I stayed in place, I would have killed myself sooner rather than later. So I thought, what the heck? What have I got to lose? Nothing. And, you know, there's nothing more powerful on this planet than a human being with absolutely nothing to lose. Yeah. So. And so how long did it grew on you before you started to plan something? Well, I didn't come. I didn't plan my suicide until 2010, when my my um, wife and I lost everything in a bankruptcy in the recession. So 24 and years, right? You know, like you, you, we're talking about. You said 86 that it started. 80, 84, 84 to 2010. So 20-something so years in bearing, yeah, and enduring, always that kind of that that. That scenario, and and during that time, did you consult? Did you did you talk about this to anyone? Did you did you share? No. no? Hmm. So you kept that to yourself. Not a word, but yeah. But bear in mind, when I made the jump to comedy, uh, it's where I belonged, you know. So doing what you love for a living has a great, you know, uh, palliative power. I mean, I wasn't depressed all the time. I wasn't suicidal anymore because I was pursuing what I I knew I was meant to pursue. And then I met my sweetheart, now my wife, about a year after I got separated from my first wife. And then we were dating and then got married. And, you know, she's a wonderful woman. She supports my comedy career. Some believes in me oftentimes when I don't believe in myself. And so, you know, it wasn't, things were good. Although I would still have that cyclical depression. And I tell people, look, I, My depression wasn't situational. Um, I was most depressed and most suicidal at moments when things were the best. You know, everything was good because it's just my wiring. I'm just wired to every so often cycle down, cycle back up. And so I didn't come out to anybody until until, um, 2014 when I did my first TEDx. Nobody knew I was depressed. Nobody knew I was suicidal, including my wife and family. 
And so, so what happens in 2010? You said that you lost everything? Well, yep. And I had a plan. Uh, and that's when I found out what the barrel of my gun tastes like. And, and eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. So they want somebody to, you know, intervene. Um, 90% of people who are suicidal in the last week of, uh, before they attempt, they give hints direct and indirect, but I would, two out of 10 people are hell bent on dying. And I was, I was headed out. Uh, I wasn't going to tell anybody. And what stopped me was I had a life insurance policy, a million dollars. And the problem is you have to have the policy 24 months before you die by suicide. If you die by suicide in less than 24 months, it pays nothing. After 24 months, it pays in full. So after I talked to my insurance agent and found out, you know, I'd only had it 22 months, I had to wait two months before I could kill myself because I was not going to leave my wife not only broken hearted, but broke. So, but because I have chronic suicidality and I knew I could do it at two months in a day, that gave me the strength and whatever to make it through those two months until the policy was in force. And then, you know, then I could do it if I chose. Fortunately, uh, things got a little better. Phone call stopped, you know, the collection calls and uh, broke the surface on my depression, took a big deep breath. And it wasn't great, but it was a little better enough to keep me here. So that's why I'm still here. And I mean, we're talking about a thread here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Had the policy been paid up, we would not be having this phone call. My wife would have the million dollars and I'd be long gone. That's it. You know, like, and I mean, even those two months where you all, like, it looks like a, how do you call that in English? Like the advent calendar, you know, like where you cross. Yeah, <laughs> the advent calendar, yeah. And, you know, like, so Mike, you, know, you were probably almost in that mindset. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had a plan. I had a plan. I had, uh, you know, I had time, place, method. I knew how I was going to do it, when I was going to do it you know what I was going to do. And I just, I was just waiting for the two months to pass so that she would get the entire, she would get the million dollars in life insurance and I was gone. And, but you know, like I, you know, like I, I felt that, you know, like there would be like a snap, but it's not a snap. It just happened that after those two months, you felt quote unquote better. And that was enough. Marginally, to, just enough. Yeah. And that was enough. Like that's what, that's where my thread come you know, you know like, that even that that 60 day mark would have been like a bad day and that was it yeah and i don't recall that 60th day so i must have been you know must have been improving some over time because i don't really recall waking up thinking well i could do it today okay <laughs> so, so. <laughs> i didn't yeah i didn't have that thought till later wow i could have done it uh, a couple days ago <laughs> jeez and and um so you said that, okay, so that happens in 2010, and then it takes four years before you um, actually kind of, you know, like um, share that or, you know, like, you know, I mean, even consult about this. I mean. Well, it was a business decision because um, I've been speaking, you know, in the corporate speaking comedy circuit for a long time. And after the recession, corporate meeting planners would say, look, Frank, we love you. We just can't pay you that kind of money anymore to come in and be simply funny. We need you to come in and teach our audience something. You know, they call it takeaways or able tos or learning objectives. You know, they need, they need to walk away being able to do something they couldn't do when they came in the room. And so I 
I could not figure out. That's what I was spent that time during those years doing is trying to figure out what I had to teach somebody. And then I read a book by a woman named Judy Carter called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And about halfway through the book, I realized, hold on, I do have something to talk about. And I began putting together the... <laughs> I collect stamps. You know, no, no, no. <laughs> no. I feel like killing myself can, all the time. <laughs> I feel like killing myself. Well, and here's the thing. As I was preparing for the TED Talk, uh, I realized that nobody talks about depression and suicide out loud. Except if you mention the words depression and suicide out loud, m almost everybody has a story. And you hear the most amazing things from people, some of whom I've just met. I'll give you an example. I'm on a cruise ship. I'm working a boat, doing, just doing stand-up comedy. And I can't find a seat for breakfast. I look over. There's a woman at a table for two. And I point, she nods, I sit. She looks up, she goes, you're a comedian? I go, uh, do you enjoy the show? She goes, I love the show. I said, and then I'm a comedian. She goes, what would you have said if I told you I hated the show? They say I look a lot like him. Um, and she goes, is comedy all you do? And I said, no, I'm a public speaker. I said, listen, if you don't mind me bragging a little bit, I got to tell somebody. I just booked my first TED Talk. She goes, I love the TED Talks. What's the topic? Well, I've had this conversation as I was rolling up to the TED Talk many times. So I said to her, depression and suicide, and I started to count down in my head, three, two, one. She goes, you know, I tried to kill myself twice. We've just met. She goes, first time in college, not particularly serious. Second time, far more serious. I graduated college. I graduated medical school. I had the knowledge. I had the equipment. She goes, Frank, I had the IV started in my ankle. I had the suicide cocktail on one hand, the syringe in the other, getting ready to load it up. And the phone rings. Well, she's conflicted. Do I answer the phone? She thought, well, I better because it might be somebody who would worry come over and interrupt. So she picks up the phone. It's her 13-year-old son. She goes, I don't know if you heard something in my voice or had a premonition, but he said, Mom, don't do anything. So I didn't. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but I decided not to do it that day because I knew he would always feel guilty. Wasn't there something he could say or do to have stopped me from dying by suicide? And there are things you can say. We've talked about them. are things you can do. I uh, said, so how old is he now? She goes, he's 21. I said, does he know his phone call saved your life? And she said, no. How do you start that conversation? So that became the theme of my first TED Talk, Start the Conversation. It's going to be the name of my book, Start the Conversation on Suicide. Um, it's, you know, that, that's, that's my job. That's what people hire me to do is come in and say things out loud that everybody's thinking about, but nobody's willing to give voice to. And that's what comedians do. That's like the little kid in the story of the emperor's new clothes. The comedian's the guy who goes, he's naked. Um, we point out things that other people see and hear but don't speak of we point them out that's that's been a comics job since the time of the court jester so it's that's why it's a good fit i think besides that i believe where there's humor there's hope and laughter there's life that nobody dies laughing so that's that's the comedy element because it's a lot more easily digestible if you can slip a little you know personalized funny in there oh and and my so that's the bigger the biggest The, the the biggest historic comedians were were pat you know like they they were pat openers right you know like the, you know like i think about you know like uh, lenny bruce and you know like carlin and yeah. you know like all these guys were actually just i'm huge fan of <laughs> of us of american stand up comedians so um all these guys were actually just opening path to like conversation You know, like even though you know, like it, it goes, but laughter just makes everything much easier to discuss about. You know, like so, so you're absolutely right. I mean, like there's no other way. Even though you know, like for me, 
just to have uh, to be casually able to have the conversation for me is just it's 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 when I listened to your TED talk, it was if if something jumped in my face was the fact that people are are not only can be inhibited by that, you know, like it's it it's not sudden. It doesn't, you know, like you don't crash per se. You know, like you you kind of slide, yeah. you slowly slide down into the abyss of of you know, like like you said, lead boots. You know, um, and then that other like that like that 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 dark Jiminy Cricket sitting on your shoulder saying, hey, see that bridge there? And hey, see that train track there? You know, like for me, <laughs> you know, like for me, it's just like, it's, 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 um, it must be you know, like almost alarming in a, in a self-conversation kind of way. You know, like you, you must be like, what the hell? You know, like leave me, you know, like, just just go you know and you you seem to have learned to kind of laugh at him you know like yeah, all right you know like great joke you know like love it you know but uh yeah i mean like for me it's well, yeah it's mind-blowing no pun intended it's here like a keto. there's a the, the, yeah thank you very much the um the it's a, there's a martial art called aikido and it's a, they call it a soft martial art because there aren't a lot of strikes what you do is somebody comes at you and let's say throws a punch, you uh, step offline and you grab the fist as it goes by and you blend with their energy and then you begin to turn in a circle, you take their balance, you lower them to the ground. So what I try to do with the depression thoughts of suicide is rather than bump up against it, you know, slamming back at it, is to try to blend because it has a great energy, try to blend with that energy and, and, and use that in a positive way because it is a very, very, uh, strong energy and it's there's a lot of force there and if you can if you can blend with it and and sort of use it in a positive way that's that's what uh, that's what i try to do let me give you a metaphor now this is the one i use for normal people or neuro normal people who don't really understand uh, mental illness it's like you uh, there's, a, there's a greek character a greek named sisyphus and his penalty for doing something the gods didn't like was to push a rock up a hill every day and then when it would get near the top the rock would roll back down to the bottom of the hill so he never was able to accomplish the, the task. And having a mental illness is like that. Every morning you wake up and there's a rock in the hill. Now, some mornings the rock is small and the hill is not so steep. Other mornings you wake up, the rock is a boulder and the hill is Kilimanjaro. And when somebody takes their life by suicide, chances are they woke up that morning and they simply, you know, couldn't move the rock. They were just tired of living and they ended it. It's, uh, they didn't want to die, but they just wanted to end the pain that's yeah i mean here uh there's you know like you talked about the u.s um counterpart alpine and here we have a phone number called one eight six six um j'appelle so j-a-p-e-l-l-e um which is pretty much the same thing that you described as you know like a kind of a hotline for anything that it's that you know like that needs help um or anyone that knows someone that needs help so it's one eight six six J A P E L L E, which would mean i'm calling or i call um yeah i mean for me it's just uh it's well, just yeah well let me give you a sort of an aana analogy um in the mental health business there's uh, peer counseling uh, family to family counseling peer counseling peer support and the reason it's so powerful, and I assume this is the same in, in, in A and AA, is that uh, there's a story about a guy who falls down a well. 
And he's down at the bottom of the well. He can't get out. It's too, you know, it's too far up, and there's no handholds. And and so he's down at the bottom of the well. He's yelling for help. And a, and a friend of his comes along and peers down into the well. And he says, "Oh man, you're down in the well. Gosh, I, I really I have no idea how to help you out. I, I wish I could." And, and moves on. And then a family member comes along and, and hears the help, 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 and looks down in the well and says, "Oh gosh, I'm so sorry you fell down the well, but I've got no way. You know, there's no way I can help you. I, I wish you luck getting out." And then another person comes along, looks over, and then goes over the wall and down and climbs as far as you can down and then drops to the bottom of the well. And the person who's stuck in the well says, what are you doing? He says, well, I came down here to help you. He goes, help me. There's, you know, <laughs> there's, no, there's, there's no way out. And the person who dropped to the ground in the well with him says, no, you misunderstand. I've been here before. And I can help get you out. So that peer counseling, AA, sponsor, NA, you know, it takes someone who's been there and done that sometimes to help someone who's in that situation, whereas friends and family can't help but somebody who's, you know, been there before and knows the way out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, like the origin, actually the origin of, you know, like every, every of those, every one of those fraternities origins from the Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, it's actually one guy that in panic of losing his sobriety calls up a a drunk doctor and um, they met up and they talked for hours straight drinking coffee and realized after that that just by sharing their own experience uh, of drunks, they didn't have the craving to drink. Um, and that's how that's how it got, you know, that's how it 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 it, it got it got created. So well and I was every on every ship every day there's a friends of Bill meeting. And there was a gentleman there who had been in AA for a long time, came up after my show, we got to talk, and I talked to him about you know, my work and suicide prevention. And he said, Frank, do you know what the connection is between alcoholism, drug addiction, and suicide? And I said, well, I know, I mean, I know that oftentimes people self-medicate and so forth. He goes, no, no. Uh, let's go deeper than that. What is the connection? What is the similarity? What is the, the factor that, that ties them all together? Suicide, drug addiction, alcohol addiction. And I said, I don't know. He says, it's an effort to kill the pain. Hmm. Um, That's well said. Whether it's suicide or alcoholism or drug addiction, it's a, it's a way to numb or kill the pain. Of course, with suicide, it's a permanent solution. But, but, the, but the principle is the same. You're just trying to kill the pain. Yeah, people use the was, image of Band-Aid. You know, like people use the image of Band-Aid. And why, you know, like when people stop drinking, they're not done with their work, right? Because, you know, like they just took off the Band-Aid of that, that you know, like where they got hurt. And they need to go dig and clean yep. that wound before it heals itself. Uh, but it's necess- it's not the alcohol that was the problem. It's actually the you know like the bandaid, which is the alcohol or the drug, was actually covering that 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 you know like where, where the, the person was hurt. And um, yeah, I mean like that's 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 great image. You know like there's there's uh, obviously similarities, and that's the reason why I invited you to 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 share your story with us. Um, how are you doing now? You know, like what's your, what's your, you, you talked about, about your daily diet, but how, how, how are you doing? Uh, you know, um, I'm, I, my depression still cry, uh, rears its ugly head occasionally. Um, I take a uh, medication called Wellbutrin. I'm not 
pushing Wellbutrin, but it happened to work for me. I didn't take it till I was 60. And then after I started taking it three weeks later, I'm like, why well, I had, why didn't I do this before? Um, you know, and I, I've got a very strict diet. I work out. Um, and as I said, in meditation, it's, it's kind of a holistic approach. It doesn't, you know, it, it, it's, it's, and I have a safe care plan, part of which is going on the cruises. And, um, I'm work, I'm work, finishing up a book with two women, uh, one on men's mental fitness. It's a book about men for men because men tend not to reach out and it's full of all sorts of good, um, it's, it's sort of, we, we made it, um, with car metaphors. So, you know, with an automobile, you need, uh, a safe care plan for an automobile would be changing the oil and rotating the tires and, you know, topping off the liquids. And then, uh, and you need, you need a, a maintenance, mental health maintenance plan, safe care plan. You also need to plan for the worst. You know, you need to have in a car, you got flares in the trunk and a jack and a spare tire and a first aid kit. And you, you need people to help you if the car breaks down, uh, you join AAA so if you have a mental illness, you, you, you know, you, you surround yourself with a community, people who know what you're living with and are willing to help. So it's, it's all sort of wrapped around that, that car, you know, metaphor. It's like a, it almost looks like a car owner's manual. And so, uh, you know, I've, I've come to know that having a self-care plan is very important, at least for me. It's, you know, it's, it's something you do every, you know, things, some things you can't control and a lot of things you can what you eat, how much you sleep, I meditate twice a day, how much you exercise, taking your medication, um, and doing this. Yeah. Speaking for me is extremely therapeutic uh, when I speak because people come up, almost always come up afterwards and they have a question uh, about mental health, mental illness, about suicide, about their, you know, they know somebody who's struggling, they need some advice, or they're struggling, or they didn't realize that chronic suicidality was a thing, and they're relieved to find out there are other people who have it. I mean, I had a woman come up to me at a dental convention. Everybody else is filing out of the room. She's walking toward me, and she's not just crying. She's weeping quietly. When she gets to me, she can't speak. So I said to her, you have chronic suicidality, and she nodded her head. I said, you didn't know how to name. She nods. I said, you thought you were just some kind of freak, and she nods. I said, well, do you have a therapist? She nods. I said, well, when you get back home, make an appointment. Tell the therapist everything you've learned today. And for goodness sakes, tell them you Googled it. Don't tell them you heard it from a comedian. (laughs) <laughs> and she nods and starts to smile, still crying. And about a week later, I got an email from her and she goes, you know, Frank, I think I went to that dental convention simply to meet you. You changed my life. And I can't say that about a lot of people. So that for me is, is very therapeutic is it's actually gotten me to the point where, um, I'm sort of like George Bailey. Do you know the movie? It's a wonderful life. Yeah. Well, the angel shows George Bailey what other people's lives would be like if he wasn't there. And I have been shown by an angel, perhaps the one that kept me from pulling the trigger, what these people's lives would be like if they didn't have the opportunity to hear me speak and ease their pain. So I can't kill myself because I would take all of them with me. Yeah. So that's my, so you know, that's why, that's why I realized. Where can yeah, people find you? You know, like I, I, I'm, you know, like I'm, I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be sharing a few of your TED talk, but you know, like where and how can people find you? Uh, my brand is the mental health comedian. Okay. And if you type that in, undoubtedly stuff will come up, but the, the website is the mental health comedian.com. But if you type in the mental health comedian, you'll find my Facebook page, my Instagram, my Twitter, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. 
and my phone number's on there, by the way. And what I tell people is, look, if you're suicidal, seriously suicidal, you need to call the lifeline and talk to somebody. If you're just having a really bad day with your mental illness, call somebody who's crazy because we're less likely to be judgmental. We're not going to tell you what you should be doing. We're just going to listen. We're just going to co-sign your BS, as we say in the U.S. Yeah. And and on my website is my phone number. So if somebody right now listening to your podcast is nodding their head at chronic suicidality or depression or thoughts of suicide, and they're thinking, I need to talk to a crazy person, then my phone number is right there. And people call me all the time. And, and don't worry about waking me up because when I go to bed, I turn the phone off. So just leave a message. <laughs> and I'll call you first thing in the morning. But I, you people are amazed when I, if they call me during the daytime and I pick up the phone, they go, you answered the phone. You weren't kidding. This is your cell phone number. Duh. <laughs> that'd be that'd job. be the, yeah that'd be the top joke right to send it to someone you don't like you know and yeah <laughs> that'd be just yeah. like bad joke um any yeah. lasting word you want to leave to our uh to your listening to to our listeners yes i get asked all the time by people who are neuronormal or neurotypical who have a friend or family member loved one who's depressed what should i say And my standard answer is, don't say anything, just listen. Yeah. Yeah. Frank, uh, it was, uh, it was uh, just, I'm, I'm humbled by the response of people to my, you know, like to my invitation to participate in the podcast. You know, like for me, it's just like a, it's an experience that I started off as, um, Well, just an experience, you know, like I wanted to see if people were willing to share their stories, talk about their stories. And, you know, like um, I, I started with, you know, like I played it safe, you know, like I started with people that I knew well and that were close to me. And then I, as I expanded, I got a bit insecure and, well, will people be, you know, like willing to share their stories and, you know, like talk about, you know, talk about themselves on, you know, online and And uh, the response has been incredible and quite humbling, to be honest. Um, and and you're part of these people that just accepted to share uh, your own story. And you know, like I I can't be thankful enough, and I can't thank you enough, you know, for for accepting well, that invitation. I I want to thank you for the opportunity to tell the story because again. Silence kills. You you just have to start and start the conversation. Who knows? There may be somebody listening at this moment who has just realized that that you know what the thoughts they've been having. They're not the only ones. They're not some kind of freak. That a lot of people have them, and and most importantly, they're not alone. And it could change your life. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Frank. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thank you. See ya. Bye bye. bye.